If you've been following uh, us in the opening Sundays of 2015, um, what you'll notice is that each of the messages, and this is the third and final one, has been aimed at what I think of as a cultural idolatry. And idolatry is when we make too much of something. And, um, and it's an idolatry of our culture. Now, before I talk about this morning's idolatry of culture that I want to address, let me just make a comment in relationship to culture itself. A culture is neither good nor bad. But culture is like a strong current um, in which you swim in that you don't often even know is going or taking you somewhere. Uh, we're often unconsciously aware of it, like a fish in a fishbowl, not seeing the color of the water because we're looking at it from the inside out. I, I think of it as, a, um, as kind of a riptide effect. I've only been in one riptide in my life. I was swimming in a beach, uh, on a beach, in a beach, in the water, at the beach. Uh, get that somehow. Um, down in Southern California, I don't remember which one, but I, I noticed that I was looking at the people on the beach and we were body surfing, and I noticed the beach was going by, like we were going horizontal to the beach parallel. And um, didn't think much of it at the time, I could still touch. But then I noticed, and w what I didn't know, was that while the current I was in was coming this way, there was another current further down the beach that was coming this way. And where those two currents met, they then pushed outward in this river that went out into the ocean um, called a, a riptide. And, and I didn't know it. I was just happy and splashing about and moving sideways down the beach. And then pretty soon the beach started going out. I couldn't touch. And I was with somebody who wasn't a good swimmer. Started panicking. Next thing I know, I see all the lifeguards like running in the direction. And I was a pretty strong swimmer. Finally got back. And um, I looked out and you could actually see this kind of brown river moving out and people caught in it. But the thing is, is that I, I didn't even know I was in it until I'm like moving out to sea. And that's, that's, that's culture is a current. It moves. And when it moves in a good direction, that's great. But when it moves in a negative direction, we almost don't even recognize that we're moving with it. And some of those currents that I've, I've done my best to address in the last two weeks, uh, those kind of cultural idolatries, the first of which was the tendency in our culture to um, seek and to chase after that which is, in the eyes of the world, extraordinary, that gains headlines, um, that, that gains a spotlight, um, that we have an insatiable appetite in our culture for, for celebrities and for the spotlight and for, for popularity. That's, that's, that's something that's in our culture. And um, the contrast or the, the, the counterbalance of that is to recognize that we as Christians are called to recognize that God works through the ordinary things that we do in life, but ordinary in the sense of the action, but extraordinary in the sense that we do so, when we do so by faith, the Lord is actually pleased. So a simple, ordinary act of faith, like going to work every day, if it's done in faith, is actually, in the eyes of the Lord, pretty extraordinary. The, the, the widow who puts the mite in the offering plate, Jesus says, wait, did you see that? That was the most unordinary thing you've ever seen in terms of nothing. The world would have just not even taken notice, but he did because it was an extraordinary act of faith. So that was one. It's just the chasing after the extraordinary, the lights and the glitz. And the, the second one has to do with that we live in a culture also that demands instant results. And we're, we're carried by that. And we expect things to happen right away in our marriage, in our families, in our own our life or in our church. It's just like we expect results and we expect them now. And rather than, as we saw last week in Luke chapter 8, is that the fruitfulness in life oftentimes comes by perseverance of just taking step after step of faith, living that ordinary life in the name of Jesus and uh, 
taking a, a long obedience in the same direction. And in that perseverance, there's fruitfulness. Oftentimes isn't immediate. Oftentimes isn't even seen in our own life. And the third one that I want to address this week is, is um, the current that we live in that is obsessed by, and I would say addicted to, that which is new and that which is novel. It, it, like a drug, newness is something that we just keep um, feasting on because it makes us feel a sense of, of life. You look at almost anything and you realize that there's this constant changeover of old versus new and we tend to neglect or disdain the old and dispose of it in, in for sake of, of, of the new, whether it's the fashion industry, cosmetic in industry, technology industry, software industry, or the latest greatest cause. There's this appetite for new things, for um, novel things. And I have to say that I'm a part of that culture, and so are you. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'm, I won't say I'm the first one, but I'm pretty close to front of the line when it comes to finding out that there's a new phone coming out. You know, I'm going onto the Apple page going, oh, check out those. Are you kidding me? Like, first we had HD, which was, all, oh, my goodness, and now we have uh, retina display. And all of a sudden, in that moment, my, 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 my old iPhone just, it, it, it seems second rate, obsolete. I'm just going to like, I'll give it to my son so he can throw it on the floor and it'll crack. You know, it's just that that's how you feel. Because it, the culture itself works, the economy works in our country by constantly hanging out the next new thing. And we, we devour it. And for a moment, there's this sense of life. There's this infatuation with the newness. But then, in order to continue it, we have to find the next new thing. I... Unfortunately, and this is to my uh, disgrace or dismay, I, I, I can do that with worship music too. Um, I have a lot of worship music on my, on my phone. And when I find a new song, and actually it's usually my wife that finds a new song and tells me about it, and then I download it from her computer, I listen to that song over and over and over again. She'll tell you, I just hit repeat. Running outside, listening to worship songs. It's so amazing. Me and God are experiencing a wonderful time. But after about the thousandth play, and that's no exaggeration, the song kind of feels blasé. It's like, and I notice that it kind of goes to the back of the worship list, and I'm like, ah, that doesn't really do anything for me anymore. And on to the next worship song. And I just see that in my own heart. And, and, and churches can operate in the same way. We, we, we approach the spiritual life. It's like, okay, I'm feeling a little dead. I need a new experience. I need something new to kind of catalyze and lift up this soul of mine that feels blasé. And one of the things we do, we look to to, to, to to experience that sense of life, I think it's a, a synthetic sense of life, is, is the consuming of the new and the novel. Rather than learning to relish and cherish that which is, is old, and to slow down for a moment and to take a simple lyric and allow it to speak a new truth into your life. An old truth is, that, that lives, like when it comes to my mind, is um, before the throne of God above. Verse 2, when Satan tempts me to despair, he tells me of my guilt with sin. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. In that moment, a very old lyric has spoken powerfully to my soul. 
that's where my soul needs to be, not chasing after that which is novel, that which is uh, the latest or the greatest, or um, looking for some new prophetic word, or looking for some new um, ambiance, or some new, whatever you want to call it, technological wonder, but simply to learn how to relish that which is already known and familiar and old. Now, I, that doesn't mean there's not a place for new things. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song, a brand new one. But you know where that song comes from? In Psalm 96, it comes from reflecting on the old and inspires a person to just create something new simply out of love and worship for God, not out of a addiction to newness. Or we should look forward to the new creation, you know, Revelation 21, 5, when God makes all things new. We should rejoice when we see God bring a heart to life and there's new creation life within that comes faith. That's, that, those are new things. I'm not suggesting that we, we don't relish when God does something new. Nor am I saying we should be culturally insensitive and go back to the 80s big hair wearing uh, penny loafers or whatever else uh, is culturally out of touch. Simply to say that, you know, what God has given to us as a community of faith to grow really is quite old and in many respects ordinary you think about it the means of grace that is the means by which we come by faith in the lord the holy spirit grows us you know they haven't changed two thousand years they have not changed and beyond simple meditation upon the scripture not new not novel it's been practiced by our brothers and sisters and forefathers for hundreds of years prayer communion with god that's not new it's the same thing same old but wonderful thing communing together as a as a as a body of christ and fellowshipping with each other that's not new that's actually quite old yet it's in the practice of those old and ancient things that that we grow not by chasing after human innovation or quote-unquote newness but I hope this morning to just remind us that we're in that current and to be aware. And rather than chasing human innovation or technological advances or the next new thing, to realize that there is a, a huge place for us to comprehend and cultivate and cherish that which is familiar and known and old. And I want to kind of, at this point, Give us an example of what that means, to, to comprehend and cultivate and cherish that which is old. Namely, this table we're about to come to. Bread and cup. It's been practiced for 2,000 years. Nothing new here. It's quite old. And I want to reflect on it or to relish it through a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 23 through 26. But by the way, um, something I failed to mention, and I, I just, I find this, uh, I don't know, affirming. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote this fictional book called The Screwtape Letters. Um, it's fictional, where the senior demon is giving his young apprentice demon, his Padawan learner, um, strategies for how to trip up Christians. And one of those strategies was actually to get people to neglect or despise that which is old 
This is the, the words of, of the senior demon saying to the, his young Padawan demon, the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. It's a strategy of the enemy to create in us a sense of horror. It's just the same old thing. The opposite of that is constantly changing, chasing the new in the novel, which leads us to the rest of the sentence, an endless source of heresies in religion. Heresies often come from the chasing of something new and novel. Uh, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage. Pretty soon, what was once new in marriage becomes run-of-the-mill, and there's a desire for something new and infatuation and inconsistency in friendship. We don't want to be the people who are horrified by the same old thing. And so will you just for the next couple of moments just, just hover and relish the table through 1 Corinthians 15, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. This is what it reads. But I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after, after supper, supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Obviously, that he's talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. That's one of the things we call it. Or communion. Or others have called it the Eucharist, which is just a word meaning thanksgiving, a table of thanksgiving, which is what it is. We give thanks at this table. In this text, just very, very briefly, four observations. One, the origin of this table comes from Jesus himself. That is, Paul said, I received it from the Lord. This was ordained, instituted, commanded by Jesus himself. That's where it comes from 2,000 years ago comes from him second observation it was meant to be passed down from generation to generation each generation um, partaking of it repeatedly paul says what i've received i am giving to you and the implication is now you're supposed to take it and deliver it to somebody else the next generation and as we do we are to repeatedly take it as often as you drink as often as you eat this bread do so remembering me it's to be this constant reminder through the generations. So first observation is from the Lord. Second observation, it's meant to be generational and repeated. Third, it was given to the community. It is a communal experience. This instruction was not given to the individual. You do not go into your closet and have communion by yourself. Communion is part of the word community. It was given to the church to come around and to remember generations older and younger and and to celebrate it together. And the, and the fourth observation is that all of it, all of it centers on one thing. Bread being his body or his corpse and his blood, his death. That is, it focuses entirely on the cross of Jesus, on the crucifixion of Jesus. There you have it. That's, that's what the Lord's table is, according to Paul. And I, I should draw your attention to the fact that it hasn't changed. What it was about 2,000 years ago is the same thing that it's about today. It hasn't changed. It's meant to be repeated. It came from Jesus. We're supposed to take it together, and it focuses our attention completely on the cross. There's nothing new here, nothing new to see here. Now, we could, we could dress it up with some window dressing. You know, instead of just your ordinary pita, 
You know, we, we can have some that maybe have a bit of a garlic and butter flavor. Or maybe a hint of rosemary. Or rye. We could soften the lights, or we could bring the lights up. We could play Jim Brickman underneath. Instead of using generic grape juice, we could use Welch's grape juice. Or instead of juice at all, we could use real wine. Or instead of real wine, we could use expensive wine. There are all these different ways. We can, we can pass it out, or we can have people come up and take it. All of this is window dressing, and, and window dressing's good. But it's just window dressing. At the end of the day, it's still just the bread and it's still just a cup. And if we get so distracted by and concerned about the window dressing and we lose the content and substance of what it's all about, what it means is that our worship, and in this particular case, the partaking of the bread and the cup, is more about us and less about him. Because it, it hasn't changed. It's just meant to draw us right straight back to him. It hasn't changed. So with that said now, let me, um, with the remaining time I have, answer the question, why? Why would Jesus institute a table um, that we're supposed to repeatedly come back to over and over and over again through the generations that centers on his death, centers on his cross? Why? Doesn't it get old? Blase, boring been here before this doesn't do anything for me anymore let me let me let me answer that in three ways and um uh there's more answers but i want to draw your attention to these one reason that we're supposed to come back to this old rugged cross over and over and over again something quite old is that it renews and refreshes the hearts he says remember 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 you know how much how many times the lord in the inspiration of scripture, calls us to remember. Like in the Old Testament, they set up these elaborate feasts like Passover or Sukkot, the, the, the Feast of Booths. And they were feasts that were intended to look backward at a past event and to remember it. Remember when they brought you out of Egypt, God brought you out of Egypt. Remember when you were traveling in the wilderness. Why this remembrance? And I think the key is the fact that when we remember something, when we truly remember something, we're bringing the past into our present consciousness. We are, we are bringing the past and we are retelling the story, reliving the story, and renewing our affection for the story. That's how it works. Remembrance is actually a means by which we renew and refresh our hearts with the truth. And a biblical example of this is uh, Jesus' words to the Ephesian church in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2. The Ephesian church, for all of its greatness, has lost its primary love. You have lost your first love, which is a, an amazing tragedy. What's the way back, Jesus says, is this. Love is dried out. Remember from whence you've fallen. Call back to mind what it used to be like when you first embraced the gospel and knew you were forgiven and knew my love and you were you were, you were reveling in it, and you were worshiping me because of it, and you were, you were willing to sacrifice for each other and give each other the shirt off of your back because you're just so, so um, brought to life by the gospel. Remember, from whence you've fallen, memory is a key to awakening and renewing and refreshing. That's one of the reasons, by the way, 
why we like to tell the same stupid stories around the dinner table. And I know my family's not the only one. I mean, my wife's family's the same way. They just love to tell the same stories. Is yours that way? You're like, man, this is about the thousandth time I've heard this story. But you know what? We never get tired of it because it helps us to relive the moment. And there's a sense of, uh, of a renewed affection. Like one of the stupid stories my family tells around the table is the time that my mom parked on top of the family dog. <laughs> I don't mean that to be gruesome. There's a happy ending to this story. But my mom, you know, 4.0 student at Pepperdine University, smart lady. But when it came to, to things that, like, um, caused her to panic, she'd lose her mind. So she backs up the car and ends up with a tire on the dog. She doesn't know what to do, so she puts it in park. <laughs> True story. And she runs across the street where my grandmother was, her mother, and she goes, I, pump, I ran over the dog, can you come help me? And so my, my grandmother... Um, who has a little more sense in, in, in difficult situations, looks at the dog, she says, um, Shirley, why don't you back the car off the dog? My mom's like, that's a great idea. Well, the dog has been under that car tire for about five minutes. My mom does it, and amazingly enough, it's almost like a resurrection. That dog gets up and lives. <laughs> we tell that story over and over and over again. Why? Well, in one part, because it's funny, but you relive it and retell it. You, we do that, you know, in our relationships. You, you, you as married couples, do you ever stop at, at your anniversary and just say, you remember when we were back in Chicago, we didn't have two pennies to, to rub together and we lived off potato soup and, um, and hot dogs? And remember we, were, we wanted to go to the dollar, dollar movie theater and, and, and we, we, you know, went into our change drawer and we scooped it together and we went and watched the stupid movie called Mask. Remember that? Yeah, those are good times. Th those are our real times. And you know what? When we talk about those times, it, it refuels and renews us. just reminds us we have something precious. That's what memory does. Jesus is saying, remember me. Remembering is a way of refreshing yourself in what I did for you. Second reason, it humbles our pride. Like when we truly take the time to pause and hold bread and cup in our hands and, and, and meditate and think on what do these represent, if we're getting it, it will have a humbling effect. Now, we're, we're used to this table being nicely um, decorated. You know, we have candles and tablecloths, and we have sterling, not sterling silver, otherwise you're going to steal them. That's uh, stainless steel. <laughs> stainless steel cups, you know, right here. It looks nice. But just let's, let's not forget, like, this is flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. In fact, this practice was so mysterious back in the first century that the pagans who didn't really know what was going on within the Christian church thought that, thought that the early Christians were cannibals. They're eating flesh and drinking blood. What are they doing? That, that contributed to their persecution. Like, no, it's, it's, we're not eating flesh and drinking blood. These are representations of the flesh and the blood of Jesus poured out for us. And what it reminds us of is the huge, immeasurable, infinite cost of the payment for our sin. It reminds us of the sinfulness of sin. It reminds us that we were not just partially cracked individuals. Like, we were messed up to the point that, like, the Son of God, the perfect man, had to die. That, 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 that means that we committed some substantial crimes against the Lord. We've committed crimes of high treason against him. And not just in the evil things we do, but in the self-righteousness and the judgmental attitudes that we carry, which were equally, if not more, offensive to the Lord. Crimes of high treason and felonies, like all of us, we hold these in our hands like, oh, 
I was bankrupt. I was dead. I was, I was an enemy. I was at enmity with you. And, and because of this, I'm made right. It just has a way of humbling our pride and reminding us of who we used to be apart from the cross. It's, it's hard to hold the bread and hard to hold the cup and think, wow, I'm a pretty good guy. Self-made man. Feel pretty good about myself. Well, if you're getting the bread and the cup, then Mr. I feel pretty good about myself will realize that without that, you're nothing but a vanishing vapor of nothingness. Nothing. This alone grants us our identity and grants us our forgiveness and grants us um, sonship and takes us from a position of forsaken and makes us the friends and family of God which is holding this. And this alone makes it possible that it humbles, humbles us. That's what it should do when we come. It should also, on the flip side, break us of any sense of self-righteousness or looking down on the other person. How how um, ironic is the wrong word, hypocritical is the right word, is it to say, thank you, Lord, for the precious gift of your life, your son, because I was condemned, and say, man, that guy over there is a sinner. It's not right. It, it should crush us of self-righteousness. And the last, and certainly not least, um, it secures us and forms us in God's covenant love. And when he just takes the cup, symbolizing his blood, he says, this cup, verse 25, is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant. That word has massive and incomprehensible significance for us, which we don't grasp in our culture. Covenant love. When we come to this table and we take the bread and take the cup, we're supposed to be reminded this is the new covenant. This is the new relationship that God has formed in us that he calls covenant. Or to maybe get you to think a little bit more clearly about the significance of it, writers talk about the difference between, theologians talk about the difference between what we might call consumer-based relationships and covenant relationships. Consumer relationships versus covenant relationships. A consumer relationship is based on the fact that you exchange certain things that are agreeable to you. So when you went, went and bought your car, you formed at some level a relationship with that car dealer and you gave them your money and they gave you the car. If you didn't give them money, you wouldn't get the car. It's a consumer-based relationship. When you have a vendor or somebody who's going to come to your house and do, redo your roof, there is an exchange that happens. A relationship may be formed, but it's a consumer-based relationship. It's like you're going to give him money, he's going to fix your roof. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And that's the basis of most, if not all, relationships in our world, consumer-based relationships. Even in terms, not just of finances, but in terms of, of romance. Let's just say a young couple wants, wants to get together and they fall in love and, and they, they decide, hey, before we get married... Let's, let's see if we're compatible, so let's live together. Now, if you happen to be here this morning and you're living with somebody outside of marriage, my point is not to single you out. It's simply to make a point. That arrangement of let's see if we fit together presupposes kind of this um, kind of economic relationship. We're going to see if you've got the goods to make me happy. And you get to see if I have the goods to make you happy. And if we've realized that the exchange is, is beneficial to both of us, well, then we can tie the knot. It doesn't take a lot to see that that is also a consumer-based relationship. If the exchange isn't there, well, then you punch out. 
they didn't fit. That's a completely different kind. By the way, that's at its heart a very self-serving form of relationship. Covenant relationship is altogether different. A covenant relationship is not fundamentally self-serving, but self-giving. You know, a, a young couple stand before God and stand before a minister and stand before their friends and family, and they make solemn oaths to each other. Oaths that are unconditional. I mean, in sickness and in health. Cancer, strokes, leaving a person paralyzed. That, is, that, that, that's, that could be horrible. In sickness and in health. In horrible and great. You know, riches and poor. For richer, for poorer. Like when we have everything, we have nothing. They just can't even find two pennies to scrap together. It's just, in all of that, I com- I'm committed to loving you and giving myself to you and caring for you and providing for you and protecting you and giving you of myself until death do us part, period. That's covenant love. Unconditional, rooted in promises and, and vows, love to give of oneself to another person. That's the way marriage is supposed to work, and that's what a covenant is. It's not a consumer relationship. It's a covenant relationship. And so when Jesus here says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, it's this line of relationship he's thinking of. It's like every time you come back to this table and you hold this cup in your hand, you ought to remind yourself that I stood there at the altar. God stood there at the altar, not the marriage altar, but the sacrificial altar of the cross. And he said in that moment to us as sinners, who, if we even have a mustard seed of faith, enter into covenant with him. He said, I do. And I give myself fully and completely to you, not because you're worthy, but because I'm great. And I promise to protect you and to preserve you as my son and my daughter, regardless of how rich you are or how poor you are, how sick you are or how healthy you are, how much you stay close to me and how much you wander. I am committed covenantally to you period, and nothing is going to break that covenant. That's what this table's supposed to tell us. Covenant love. God did not come to give us consumer relationship with him. Well, if you obey me 50% of the time, I will save you. That'd be consumer-based relationships. No. I paid for it all, and I'm committing myself to you. Covenant of love. Steadfast, inviolable love. Now, now, why would he want us to remember that over and over again? Well, silly. First of all, we forget. And second of all, every one of us, experientially speaking, come in here and live lives that are dirty. Just some of us have lost our patience with our children. Some of us have gotten angry at our wives. Some of us have, have lusted this week. Others of us have not told the truth entirely, and we know that. And And during those times when we feel that experiential guilt, even if we're justified in God's eyes, we still carry that with us. And it it eats away at the inside, and it makes us feel things or or say things like this in our heads. It's like, well, maybe God, I mean, how can God love me and me like this? This is the 15th time I've screwed up doing the same thing. Or we question, "Am am I really forgiven? Why would God put up with me? And filled with doubt and so forth. And, and that's what happens when you feel dirty experientially. You begin to doubt and question. And you can do one of two things with that experience. 
you can either self-redeem or look somewhere else. Self-redeem, you know, it's what many of us do when we feel that sense of inner dirt. We decide, oh man, I gotta lament because if I don't feel bad enough, well then how am I gonna actually feel I'm not guilty? And so I lament, cry, berate yourself inwardly, like how could you? And then after enough time of you hurting yourself emotionally, you feel a sense of atonement. Okay, I, I, can, I now feel like a different person than that dirty person over there. It's a form of self-redemption. And the Bible would say that's utterly futile to try, try and assuage your own guilt through your own penance. That's one direction. Or you can just come back to what Jesus said. Do this over and over and over again so that you can hear afresh each time you take it, God say to you, listen, I took care of that a long time ago. I separated your sin as east is from the west at the cross. It's not in part, but the whole thing has been nailed to the cross as we just sung. Amazing lyric, right? That's what we're supposed to be reminded of when we hold these precious elements. And they're not new, they're not novel, they're old. But they're filled with wonder and release and liberty and strength to know God is in covenant with me. Nothing can change that. It's a covenant that is rooted and based in the blood of Jesus that separates me from my sin. And that increases our strength and our sense of freedom. So, this, so I want to just practice this, this this morning. Not just come and just take it, but come remembering. Remembering, praying, spirit, renew and refresh us with the thoughts of what happened. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. Not only refresh us, but humble us and then secure us and form us by his um, steadfast, immovable, inviolable love so that we know in our hearts that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because he's in covenant love with us. I'm going to pray. So let's remember this morning and pause. I'm going to pray, and as I, as, I, as I do, if I could have those who are serving communion with me come forward. And just a reminder, we do have... Um, looks like we only have gluten bread at this line. So if you have gluten allergies, um, it's gluten-free bread. Um, then come to the center aisle. And um, there will be people over here to pray for you. And mind you, um, we don't just pray for, want to pray for people who have personal struggles, but even if it's a struggle with somebody you love, like a son or a daughter or, or a parent, just please just want you to feel like you can be prayed for about anything. And then if you're a follower of Christ, come after I pray and, and let's remember, remember together um, the covenant love of Christ for us.